Amen. If you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. And I will ask, will you stand again um, as we read God's word? And before I read, let's ask the Lord to illumine our hearts and our minds to hear what he has to say. Shine within our hearts, loving master, the pure light of your divine knowledge. And open the eyes of our minds that we may comprehend the message of your word. Instill in us also reverence for your blessed commandments, so that having conquered sinful desires, we may pursue a spiritual life, thinking and doing all those things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Christ, are the light of our souls and bodies, and to you we give glory together with God who is without beginning, and your all-holy, good, and life-giving spirit, now and forever to the ages of ages. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, having boldness to enter the holy place by Jesus' blood, by a new and living way which he opened for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a great priest over God's household, let us approach with a true heart in faith's full assurance, with hearts that have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and bodies that have been washed pure with water. Let us hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering, because he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider one another to provoke to love and good works, not forsaking our meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you all see the day drawing near. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Please be seated. In his preface to his commentary on the Epistle to the Romans, Martin Luther wrote this. Faith is a living, daring confidence on God's grace, so sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. This confidence in God's grace and knowledge of it makes men glad and bold and happy in dealing with God and all his creatures. And this is the work of the Holy Ghost in faith. Hence, a man is ready and glad without compulsion to do good to everyone, to serve everyone, to suffer everything in love and praise to God who has shown him this grace. And thus, it is impossible to separate works from faith, quite as impossible as to separate heat and light from fire. Faith is confidence. It's assurance in God's promise which results in trust and obedience. Obedience isn't the ground of this confidence, but it's the result of it, and it strengthens this confidence. And this this view of Luther's drove the very fault lines of the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent undermined this assurance. And it even explicitly stated that no one can be fully assured of his own salvation, always in doubt, As a result, Catholics continue today to pursue grace through the Roman sacramental system. In contrast, the Reformers followed Scripture in declaring that assurance is available to those who believe the gospel. The Westminster Larger Catechism addresses this in question and answer 80. Question, can true believers be infallibly assured that they are in the estate of grace and that they shall persevere therein unto salvation? Answer, such as truly believe in Christ 
and endeavor to walk in all good conscience before him may, without extraordinary revelation, by faith grounded upon the truth of God's promises and by the spirit enabling them to discern in themselves those graces to which the promises of life are made and bearing witness with their spirits that they are the children of God. These may be infallibly assured that they are in the estate of grace and shall persevere therein unto salvation. Christians can be assured of their salvation. But this assurance is not meant to lead to a disregard for holy living. Rather, it should drive us to deeper communion with the covenant God and living holy lives as his covenant people. The Heidelberg Catechism summed up the Christian faith and life so well under three simple headings. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. And this is exactly what our passage tonight addresses. The author of Hebrews so far has extolled the excellencies of Christ, the high priest, the mediator of the new covenant. And showed that his perfect salvation is sure for all who look to him. The guilt of our sin has been met perfectly by the grace of God in the Lord Jesus. So assurance can't be found by looking backward to the old covenant and its types and shadows and ceremonies, nor is assurance found by looking inward to our own hearts. Instead, it's found by looking outward and upward to the blessed Savior seated at the right hand of the Father. And based on this assurance, the call to the Hebrews... The call to us, indeed the call to to all who hear the gospel, is to respond in gratitude to this good news. The only proper way, by trusting and obeying. On the last page of your bulletin, there's an outline you can follow. And I've broken up trust and obedience for us into four cons. Confidence, conscience, confession, and consideration. So first let's look at confidence in the priest, verses 19 through 21. Our passage tonight begins with a so. Your translation probably reads, therefore. And as any first semester hermeneutic student can tell you, we need to know what the therefore is therefore. In this case, our author is giving us a summary of what he's been saying about the high priesthood of Christ in order to make application to his hearers. He actually introduces chapter, this topic back in chapter 4. And he's really focused on it in chapters 8 and 9. Like like any good preacher, he has spent six chapters focused on a subject that he's now going to try to summarize in three brief verses. But this is because, like any good preacher, he knows that the core of God's word is not mere information transfer. The word of God demands a response. A response of belief and of obedience. The author of Hebrews knows the person and work of Christ is not theoretical. We shouldn't be content with merely seeing all of the neat ways that Jesus fits with the Old Testament. Instead, we see that who he is and what he has done gives deep and specific meaning to each one of us. And this is why I love when we come to our confession of faith and we confess the Nicene Creed. It emphasizes that the faith that we have is not only Jesus did this, but Jesus did this for us and for our salvation. There's a huge difference between Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek and we have a great priest over God's household. So our author personalizes and then he presses the point home. 
And this passage marks the transition in, in the larger book from his explanation to his exhortation. Because all of this is true, now here is how you should respond. And his, his summary of the power of Christ's priesthood is this. God's people have confidence because they have entrance into the presence of God and a priest over his house. This confidence, this boldness. Notice he doesn't offer it to them. He doesn't call them, hey, become bold. Instead, he says, brothers and sisters, we have this boldness. It's a current possession. And remember who he's addressing, right? This is a group of believers that's wavering and considering turning from the faith and turning back to the old covenant. So the confidence he's talking about can't just be an emotional or an existential state for which we can all be thankful because I don't know about you guys, but I am not a bold or a confident person by nature. But in fact, what we have in view here is objective, but it's also subjective. It, it brings to mind the idea of someone who belongs, belongs where they are. They have every right to be where they are. And so they're completely at ease to act accordingly. It's similar to the idea of freedom of speech. Which lets the speaker be frank and direct with their words and not feel like they have to hold back. This confidence that they and that we have is that we have every right to enter the holy place. The very presence of Yahweh himself. And don't miss the way that what's being said here. If these Hebrew Christians return to the temple structure for worship, they actually return to a system where they're barred from entering the holy of holies. But through Christ, they have every right to be in the true holy place, of which the the earthly sanctuary is just a mere copy and shadow. They would be trading full access to the real thing, only to be prohibited from entering the shadow. But don't we often do the same types of things? C.S. Lewis once said, We are like children who want to go on making mud pies in the slums because we cannot even imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the beach. So let us, let us never settle for less than the reality of fellowship with God offered in Christ. But notice also this boldness, this confidence. It's not limited to the select few. The author together with all of his brothers and sisters, possesses this confidence now. But it's not common to all people. It belongs to those who belong to God's household. And we don't discover this way into the presence of God. And we certainly don't forge it for ourselves. As sinners, we cannot ascend the mountain of the Lord. Instead, the blood of Jesus is the only foundation for our confidence. In the Old Covenant, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies only while ritually covered by the atoning sacrifice. But in the New Covenant, only those covered by the blood of Jesus have this right to boldly approach God. He describes this entry into the sanctuary as the only way, and he describes it as both new and living. At his ascension, Jesus entered into the presence of his Father. This time, not only as the beloved and eternal Son, but now also as the God-man, the second Adam who fulfilled the covenant of works 
and earn the way to eternal blessedness through his obedience for himself and for all who are united to him by faith. He did so in a living way. Having died, he was restored to life and he continues alive forevermore. He has life in himself and he grants this life to all who are his own. In the old, old way, the old covenant, the living priest could only enter to the sanctuary covered by the blood of a slain sacrifice to make atonement. So this way was not a living way. But in the new way, in the new covenant, the priest is worthy to enter by his own life, to bring the sacrifice of his own self. And so this once for all sacrifice is sufficient. It is the way of the living God who has a living word because the mediator always lives to make intercession. The tabernacle and the temple had only one entrance into the inner sanctuary. If you remember from Leviticus, it was on the east side and it was shielded by a curtain. So too, there is only one way to God and there is separation between God and man because of his holiness. But do you remember at the crucifixion what happened to this curtain? And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. In our passage tonight, Jesus is both the new and living way and his flesh is the veil. When Christ's side was pierced, when he was split open, so also was the barrier that separates God from man. Calvin puts it this way. As the veil covered the recesses of the sanctuary and yet afforded an entrance there, so the divinity, though hid in the flesh of Christ, yet leads us even into heaven. Nor can anyone find God except he to whom the man Christ becomes the door and the way. Thus, we are reminded that Christ's glory is not to be estimated according to the external appearance of his flesh, nor is his flesh to be despised. Because it conceals as a veil the majesty of God, while it is also that which conducts us to the enjoyment of all the good things of God. The veil separating God from man has been torn, and it's been done so by Christ's sacrificial work, which makes a new way into the presence of God for man to dwell with him forever. And the confidence is spoken of here. It's not based only on the sacrifice, but it's also based on the priest himself. The Hebrews didn't need to return to temple worship because they already had a priest. And we have access to God because we have that same priest. And he's not just any priest. He is a great priest. In fact, as we have heard, Christ is the ultimate priest. In our Old Testament reading tonight, we heard a prophecy that Jesus has now fulfilled. Jesus is the priest who sits on a throne. Jesus is priest over God's household. And if you remember, back in Hebrews 3, Jesus is being compared with Moses. And Moses is described as a servant in the household of God. But Jesus is the son and the architect, the builder of that household. So just as Zechariah prophesied, the priest king has built the temple, the people of God, Jew and Gentile from every age. 
Listen to how Paul describes this reality in Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Isn't it amazing how closely this parallels with Hebrews 10, 19 through 22? So this confidence, this boldness, rooted in Christ's finished work, is ours. But just like freedom of speech, if it's not acted upon, it becomes worthless. So what we should do now is going to be the the focus of the remainder of the passage. But before we move to that, I want to pose two questions and give a brief warning. First... Have you placed your trust in the shed blood of Jesus to be forgiven? If not, the call for you tonight is to repent of your sin and to repent of your self-righteousness and to trust in Jesus alone for salvation. He is the only way to God. For the rest of us, what gives you confidence and boldness? Is it a job, a skill, your health? Another person, family, reputation, or a status? What would happen if that thing were taken away? Is there anything more fundamental to your joy and your spiritual confidence than the person and work of Jesus Christ? If so, that thing, whatever it is, is an idol that will fail you. So turn away from whatever that is and instead place your trust and your rest In Jesus, because he will not fail. And a warning, be very wary of placing your confidence, your boldness in your current emotional state or your good works or your circumstances or your love for the Lord. Are you doing well? Praise God, I rejoice with you. But take care lest you fall and know hard times will come. Are you in despair over your sin, over your weakness, your lack of joy, or your circumstances? Then hear the good news. By faith, you possess the same access to God as Jesus himself. Through union with him, you have every privilege to eternal life and blessedness that Jesus does. So don't let this confidence remain theoretical for you. Live boldly. You can do this because through Christ, you have a conscience sprinkled clean. Verse 22. The proper response for the audience here is to approach the Lord. And this actually echoes what we heard back in chapter 4, verse 16, where the author tells us, Based on Christ being a sympathetic high priest, let us then with boldness approach to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. If we think back to the Old Covenant, we're actually continually reminded of what disqualified someone from coming before the Lord. In our study of Leviticus, 
you may remember in Leviticus 21, it is a whole list of the things that disqualify the descendants of Aaron from serving as priests, from being able to approach the Lord to serve him. The covenant God repeatedly lists who may not approach him. And even the high priest can only come in once a year, covered by the atoning blood of the sacrifice on the day of atonement. But here, on the basis of the work of the final and the greatest priests, all who come may approach through this new way. His work is sufficient to make them worthy to boldly approach. And now is not the time to draw back into the shadows. We are to approach with a true heart. Jesus has opened the way into the true tabernacle. And the hearts of those that are drawing near must be true. The work of Jesus in the new covenant has resulted in his people having their hearts of stone removed and replaced with hearts of flesh. Hearts with the law of God written on them. Even more, we may approach with faith's full assurance. The author's already expressed his desire for this in his audience back in chapter 6. A true heart, full assurance of faith, means that there is no need for us to hedge our bets when we approach the Lord. We may come without hesitation. But even this true heart is not the result of our own faithfulness. It's the result of a sprinkling that cleanses us from an evil conscience. The sprinkling is a once-for-all application of the once-for-all sacrifice. Just like us, the Hebrews had evil consciences that condemned them, but they were washed. Just as David in Psalm 51, like our confession tonight, had pled to be purified with hyssop. Just as the author of Hebrews had described the external rites of the Old Covenant in chapter 9, now the greatest priest sprinkles his own blood, which doesn't merely cover the external, but it cleanses the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The same blood of Jesus that makes a way for us into the presence of God now also sets us apart for his service. But along with sprinkled hearts, we read we have a body washed with water. Just like with the sprinkled hearts, the author here speaks of a singular, unrepeated act that makes clean. Sprinkled hearts, washed bodies. Now, our entire person, both material and immaterial, has been ritually cleansed. This should call to mind the words we heard from Ezekiel in our assurance of pardon. He spoke the prophecy that God himself would sprinkle his people with clean water and give them a new heart. But I think our passage also seems clearly to relate to the sacrament of baptism in the new covenant. The external sign perfectly bears objective evidence of the inward work of the Spirit. It ought to bolster that full assurance of our faith. And it's the ground and the impetus from turning from the old ways and approaching God in His holiness. When we waver, when our faith is not fully assured... This passage serves as a reminder. We have been claimed by God for his own purposes. And we can look to him in full assurance. When we sin, when our conscience doesn't seem clear and our hearts are not true, in baptism, we have a means of assurance. Calvin describes it this way in in the Institutes. Baptism is appointed to elevate, 
nourish and confirm our faith. We are to receive it as from the hand of its author, being firmly persuaded that it is himself who speaks to us by means of the sign. That it is himself who washes and purifies us and effaces the remembrance of our faults. That it is himself who makes us partakers of his death, destroys the kingdom of Satan, subdues the power of concupiscence. No, makes us one with himself. That being clothed with him, we may be accounted the children of God. These things I say we ought to feel as truly and certainly in our mind as we see our body washed with water. So if you have been baptized, you have been claimed by God, you have been extended the promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ. God in Christ has drawn near to you. So what is there holding you back from drawing near to him? With confidence that your conscience has been purified. Now let's consider our confession of hope. And verse 23 is another callback to chapter 3. Those who hold fast their confession of hope show that they belong to the family of God. The book of Hebrews has repeatedly shown us the faithfulness of God. Most specifically, we see this faithfulness is summed up in the perfect priestly work of Jesus. So what other response can there be but to continue in faith by holding on to this confession? This is one reason we confess our faith every week. We strive hard in every service to remind you of the faithfulness of God in the sermon. And by responding, by confessing our faith together with the saints throughout history, we are affirming and establishing this confident hope in ourselves and in each other. But we should remember that in Scripture, hope doesn't carry the same idea that we often mean today. Biblical hope isn't merely just wishing. Instead, it's expecting. So this confession of hope looks backwards at the faithfulness of God. And then looks forwards to the promised consummation of salvation. When we receive the blessed hope of seeing our Savior with our own eyes. When our eyes are firmly fixed on this hope. When we are anchored to this hope behind the curtain. We can endure, no matter the circumstance. And Chris will get to speak more about what living in hope looks like in a few weeks when we get to Hebrews chapter 11 and the hall of faith. But I think one way that we can hold on to this hope is to stockpile reminders of the Lord's faithfulness in the good times to prepare us for the difficult times. We would all do well to strive to remember what the Lord has done. How he has kept his covenant to us. How he has never abandoned us. And hold those treasures close so that when all around our soul gives way, we have specific reminders about how he is all our hope and stay. But above all, we know that Christ's hold on us is unwavering. So we have good reason for our hold on our confession of hope to be the same. So lastly, our confidence in our priest, our consciences sprinkled clean, and our confession of hope unwavering should breed in us a consideration of the brothers, verses 24 and 25. And here, the implications of what we're talking about move us from internal and personal responses to external and interpersonal ones. This begins with each one not looking 
only to his own needs, but giving careful consideration to each other. None of us stand alone in our faith, but as we are each members of the household of God, our life of faith is exercised in community with other Christians. And if you've spent much time at all talking to me about sanctification, you have probably heard me say, sanctification is a group project. We are given one another, for better or for worse, to help each other become more Christ-like. The Westminster Confession describes our responsibility to each other in this way. Saints, by profession, are bound to maintain an holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities. Again, if you're anything like me, it's not always easy to consider others. I can get so preoccupied with my own thoughts or distressed with my own sins or caught up in my own day-to-day grind or the cares of this world that I don't take time to consider others, to reach out to them, to think about what they may need. But loving one another requires a conscious effort to consider one another as we share our lives together. And in this shared life, the author is looking for three specific interactions. First, he wants them to provoke each other to love and good works. And outside this passage, this word provoke in scripture only refers to a fervent disagreement or a stimulation to anger. This, the author says, is how strong our interaction should be in a positive manner. We should push one another's buttons to grow in godliness. This provocation is to love and good works. And do you see here the traditional triad of Christian virtues? Verse 21, the readers have faith. Verse 22, they have hope. Verse 23, they provoke others to love. Faith, hope, and love. A summary of the Christian life. And as they consider one another, they are to compel love to come out. Love parallels perfectly with good works. Because as Christ taught, love is the sum of the law. Now, like I told the kids, I can attest, both as a father and as an oldest sibling, that all too often in a household, it is easy, maybe even fun, especially under stress, to instigate the worst in someone's siblings. However, the Christian's energy is to be spent in drawing out from his brothers and sisters the good works that are the fruit of true faith. So I think it's worth asking a couple questions at this point. What do you tend to provoke in others? When you talk with your family or your believing coworker or your neighbor or with each other, are you looking for ways to get the best out of them? Kids, especially with your brothers and sisters, are you combative? Are you pushing their buttons to frustrate and to annoy? Or... What do our posts and comments on social media elicit? Faith, hope, love, joy, peace, charity? Or contention, envy, strife, despair, lust, laziness, bitterness, or even just attaboys from our own tribe, which really is just to feed our own self-righteousness? 
Provocation is not gossiping, blasting, or nitpicking everything negative that we see in our brothers and sisters. Instead, it's loving and patient encouragement to pursue the true, the good, and the beautiful. The author here gives us permission to find the right buttons to push to get your brothers and sisters to love the Lord, to do good works. And of course, this requires taking the time to get to know each other well enough to know how to encourage each other. And because it's a two-way street, to be open to being known in the same way. So my prayer is that all of us will grow in our desire to pull Christ's likeness out of each other. And that as we do, Christ's church may be known as a church committed strongly to fostering faith, hope, and love. And this consideration of each other obviously can't be done unless we share life together. However, apparently many of the Hebrews' compatriots had made a habit of forsaking meeting together. Not just occasionally, but often enough for it to be a noticeable pattern. There are those who have forsaken gathering with their brothers and sisters in the worship of the Savior. And in so doing, they've abandoned their calling to love one another. So the second interaction the author desires is simply continue to gather together. And really, do I need to say anything else on this subject? We were deprived of this gathering for several weeks. And many of our body are still unable to come to worship. Didn't you feel the need for being with God's people each week? And look around. Go ahead. Don't you feel the void from the faces you don't see? We are embodied beings, and God's design for us includes physical presence with one another. But the author's not just speaking of a general hanging out together. He's thinking of purposeful Christian fellowship, which has its zenith in the weekly worship service. It's because it's in the gathered worship of the church that the Spirit ministers through simple means of grace. It is here that spiritual strength is renewed, that the word of the Lord cuts like a double-edged sword, and that we're all reassured of the faith and the confident hope that we have. Those who habitually abandon the regular gathering of God's people for worship are are leading self-centered lives. But in the end, they're hurting their own cause just as much as they hurt that of their brothers and sisters. And I, I can't tell you how many times over the past several years that I've seen those who fall into devastating sin or even abandon the faith altogether begin the slide just by stopping showing up on Sundays. And yes, there are legitimate reasons to miss our weekly gathering. We're we're living in the middle of a pretty big one right now. But when we encounter a circumstance or an event or an activity that threatens our regular attendance on the means of grace that God has provided for our salvations, it's worth considering what is it that those things offer that we think is better or more important than what we receive when we are gathered here together. We should be wary that in those things, whatever they are, there aren't idols calling us away from the call of our covenant God to gather as his people in worship. Instead of abandoning the gathering, we are to carry out the third interaction the author has in mind. Encourage one another. For the Hebrews, we've talked about the dangers that the trials they would be facing 
what they are through persecution. These dangers, these trials are very real. The existential threat of looming persecution made this work for them all the more vital. The author himself is giving a wonderful example of what encouraging each other looks like in writing this epistle. Because Christian encouragement, it goes beyond just bare compliments or keep it up platitudes. Instead, here's what Christian, uh, Christian encouragement is. It's a reminder of what he told the Hebrews to do in chapter 3. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encouragement is to persevere in the faith, to look to Christ, to lay hold of the share that we have in Christ's kingdom. And this should only intensify as each passing moment brings us closer to seeing God, whether at the return of Christ or even in our own deaths. Christian fellowship is a means given to us to prepare each of us to meet the Lord. So as we close... Let me ask, what are you sure of? And and what difference does it make? On the testimony of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, I am sure of this. Jesus Christ is a perfect priest. Through his ministry, we can boldly approach God with clear consciences and holding our confession of hope. And because of this, we are to consider each other, pushing each other to hold to Christ to the end, And living lives worthy of our calling until we see our Savior face to face. You can be sure that God will not break his promise. That all who look to Christ in faith will be saved. The author is writing. And I'm standing here speaking to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life. Jesus is worthy of our trust and our obedience. By the power of the Spirit, may it be true of all of us. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we ask you, in the name of our risen and reigning King Jesus, that you drive away the idols that give us false assurance, that you drive away our self-righteousness that falsely assures us, that you drive away the fear and the doubts that threaten our assurance by your Spirit. Would you work in us love for one another? Would you work in us love for our Savior and confident hope in the confession that we have? May we be the men, the women, the children that you would have us to be. And may we spur one another on to love and good works, that your name may be glorified and that it be for our good. We ask these things for the sake of Jesus. Amen.